The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome everybody to Night Fright. Man, when I drove into the studio tonight, that wind is just howling right across Lake Ontario. Holy cow, the car was shaking. Now, I don't have a large car, but it's certainly not small by any sense. It's a Mazda 3. And good gas mileage, by the way, folks. Um, Mazda, you owe me some money for that one. But I just wanted to tell you, it is stormy out there. We've gone from beautiful weather in the 80s down to, I would say, in the mid-40s, and uh, there's a tornado warning. Are you ready for this? In Toronto. <laughs> in Toronto! What is going on with the weather? And we'll get to that tonight, folks. First of all, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going, settle back in your most comfy chair have we got an amazing guest for you tonight this is a guest folks i've been dying to get on the show since i started and we got her this let me read this in 1678 they were called the ominous name of the mowing devil in canada the department of national defense that's the canadian forces sent two investigators deep into rural alberta to examine what was labeled three circles, quote-unquote, of unknown origin. Now, the Canadian Department of National Defense were unable to make, and I quote, definitive conclusions on who made them or how. No doubt. Our guest tonight, and I'm pleased and elated to have her on, is the expert in the world on crop circles and animal Mutilations. None other than Linda Moulton Howe is with us tonight, folks. Linda Moulton Howe is a globetrotter. Having traveled into just about every country in the world, Linda Moulton Howe is a graduate of Stanford University. And I was speaking to her earlier this week and bragging about my nephew in aerospace, Tyler Reed, who you know was on the show several weeks ago with Story Musgrave. And uh, just elated to have the two of them together. With a master's degree in communication, she has devoted her documentary film, television, and radio career to productions concerning science, medicine, and the environment. And don't forget, folks, Linda Moulton Howe, are you ready for this? Emmy Award-winning TV producer. Let me say that once more. She's an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. It is my great pleasure to welcome Linda Moulton Howe to Night Fright for the very first time and most definitely not the last. And she's looking beautiful, folks, as you can see. Welcome, Linda. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent, a lot. I'm happy to be here. And you have brought up the subject that I think is the beautiful aspect of high strangeness. And then at the other end of my investigation is probably the most repulsive and yet mysterious animal mutilations. And those two have driven so much of my investigation into news reports because that has always been my priority. What are the facts at the bottom of these phenomena? And what can we nail down? And when you realize that in 1979, September, for the very first time, I was sitting across from a retired sheriff in Logan County, Colorado. And I had looked at all of these Polaroids that he had taken out at animal mutilation sites 
in which some of the animals were found in flattened circles of grass. And he said to me, at the end of that day, when it was, I was hitting it completely new as director of special projects for the CBS station in Denver, where I produced documentaries. And when he, we were at the end of about a five or six hour meeting of looking at photos and offense reports, he looked at me quietly and he said, Linda, I'll do you a favor. The perpetrators of these animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. This is right at the end of the very first meeting with a sheriff. And when he said that, he went on to explain about his own firsthand eyewitness sightings of lights that did motions in the sky, that they got on time lapse. He showed me time lapse photos that were over pastures. That's why they were out in night watches. And the lights would set down beams. And he said, after the investigations, the lights, the beams, and working with one veterinarian on a necropsy on a cow in a pasture, they took the cow apart right where it was found, dead and mutilated. And the veterinarian on that case, this is coming right from the sheriff, when he opened up into the chest area, there was no heart muscle. Now on a adult cow, it's about nine by seven by 10 or 11. A cow's heart is enormous. And you take my hands and you say veterinarian reports of something this large. And when they open up the chest, there's not one piece of heart muscle. And in this case, Sheriff Tex Graves said, the veterinarian told him, this was around 1974, that the pericardium, and the sheriff could see, he lifted it up, the pericardium is the transparent sac. It's around the cow's heart, it's around your heart, my heart. We all have a protective sac called the pericardium. Inside of this cow, where the heart is entirely missing, the pericardium was collapsed inside of the animal's chest. And when the vet did an examination, because he knows there's no heart, this is the kicker. There was not one excision of any kind in the pericardium. There was no blood, there was no clotted blood. There was no clotted blood in the chest. There was no clotted blood in the aorta or the venal system. And the only liquid that the vet found and the sheriff saw with his own eyes was about a teaspoon that looked like water. That was a pale pink. That's it, a teaspoon inside of the collapsed pericardium that had not one excision. And Sheriff Graves told me that the vet looked at him and said, don't you ever call me out to examine another one of these mutilations because I refuse to stand up in front of media and be able to defend something that is impossible, incomprehensible, and I have no explanation. That is where things began for Sheriff Tex Graves. This is the baton he passed to me as a TV producer, trying to find out what was happening to all these animals. And that day in September of 79 said, the perpetrators are creatures from outer space. And as I sit here in May of 2015, I have traveled the planet I have investigated hundreds and hundreds of these animal mutilation cases. And where we started, the beauty of the crop formations and the repulsion of the animal mutilations. And yet, what sets the animal mutilations apart from predator, from disease and satanic cults, 100%. Nothing is torn apart. There is no blood. People need to remember in the classic evolutionary history since at least the 1950s to early 1960s of this phenomena around the world. This is what law enforcement everywhere, the very first thing, they know what predators do. I have all kinds of photographs and videos of what predators do to horses, to cows, to goats, to sheep. 
it's a bloody mess and everything is torn apart. The animal mutilations right from the beginning are so clean, so pristine, that when I think back, what was it that impressed me the most? It always was the bloodless, precise nature and that you'd be standing on like face powder dust, which is the way it is in Colorado and a lot of the Southwest in the United States. You don't have a lot of grass growing. There'll be, be tufts of grass and there will be water, but there's lots and lots of dust. So when you see a 1700 pound, whether it's a male or a female, lying on its side and it's all powdered dust and there's not a track around the mutilated body, including not any tracks leading to or from the body. This is why law enforcement in the 60s concluded whatever was doing the animal mutilations was coming from above, somehow coming down, lifting these animals away, doing these excisions and putting them back. Now, it's really important to establish one more high strangeness piece here. I think of all of the photos that Sheriff Tex Grave showed me that day, and of all the cases, I don't know, maybe a thousand or so, that I personally have had some involvement in over the last 35 years, he had a series of Polaroids, he had taken them himself. And it was a steer, a black steer, lying again in this powdery type of dirt. They, the, the feet were out like that. They were literally heel to heel, hoof to hoof. And so imagine a cow, a steer lying on its right side with its, its legs extended and you can see in the photos that the hooves are that close together, front legs and back legs. There's not one line of movement anywhere around those hooves. The head is lying down in an eight inch deep hole measured by Sheriff Graves. Ear missing, eye, tongue, jaw, genitals. It's the classic animal mutilation, no blood, no tracks. But here is this head, eight inch deep hole. And when I asked Sheriff Tex Graves, what in the world happened here? because until discussing this case, it was the idea that something was coming, bringing the animals up, doing the mutilations and then putting them down. Now here is an animal that is on the ground with its head down in a hole. And the sheriff said, well, you know, when we got to this one, he said, the deputy and I were looking first at that powder ground and there's no track. We can see that those hooves are perfectly together, like they had been glued together. There's no death struggle. We can see that the excisions are what we are seeing, but there's no blood anywhere. There's no fluid anywhere. And that hit. And he said, we walked around and around, not approaching, because we were trying to figure out what in the world and he said, we came to the conclusion that whatever did this had the power to paralyze the animal on the ground, take the excisions, the tissue and the fluid, but leave the head unparalyzed and that the animal in a state of agony had dug the hole with its head eight inches deep. Those are photographs, and I have the photograph of this in my new uh, second edition of my first book, An Alien Harvest, and people can see this for themselves. When the sheriff told me that, and I'm looking at these Polaroids for the very first time in my life, at the very beginning of my investigation, I remember thinking with a sense of sort of awe at what could do this and then a mixture of nervous fear about why and what is interesting is that was the first night 
in my life on this planet when I left that office and I got in my car, I had a two-hour drive back to my home in southern uh, Denver, in Littleton. My whole life, my parents said I started asking for a telescope when I was three years old. I was sort of born with this love and passion of astronomy. I love being out at night. I have always found it to be a comfort and an ally. That night, when I got into my car, I still remember looking up at the sky for the very first time ever feeling any nervousness that I was going to be uh, driving at night. And as I drove and I kept looking up in a sunroof into the sky, I became aware of how nervous I was. The whole next nine months, took nine solid months, 18 hours a day. I never took a break to produce, write, direct, edit, and report what I call a strange harvest. And in those nine months, I had to keep reminding myself of my nervous fear that first night with the sheriff, and that by the time it was broadcast, that I had to lay out everything as factually as I possibly could without scaring people, because I personally came to the conclusion, it's the same conclusion I have today. If it is extraterrestrial biological entities, as the sheriff said then, and so many have told me since, and I've come to the conclusion that is the answer. There are 7.2 billion people on this planet now. There's been continually exponential growth in population. If what I have seen in two hemispheres in many countries and investigated over the last 35 years is serving some sort of a need, that I think you have to ask that question in any investigation. What is the need? And that right now it appears to me from a whole series of facets of all kinds of phenomena that kind of come together in a river and they come to where we are today, that there appears to be a biological problem, that we are dealing with some sort of non-human intelligence that can interact with this planet, with animals, with plants, with humans, with advanced technology. But they have a biological problem. And that the harvest, a strange harvest, that is my first title, 10 years later, my book, uh, An Alien Harvest, I use that word because I came to the conclusion that that repetitive pattern, ear, eye, tongue, jaw, flesh, genitals, and rectum, that's the classic. Sometimes dew claws, occasionally a molar, but for the most part, there is a pattern and fluid. There's no question that there is some kind of a harvest of hemoglobin molecules from inside of arteries and veins. And why do I say that? One of the big puzzles to pathologist Dr. John Altshuler in Denver, who helped me for three or four years in investigations was, if, if you look at mutilation after mutilation, and you've got these clean cuts and there's no blood. Is it cautery? Is it exsanguination? Technically and medically, veins and arteries, blood is pumping through them and you start taking blood out and they will reach a point, they collapse like this. That is an automatic shutdown of the vein artery system and Allegedly, as far as our medical science is concerned, that will preserve fluid blood in the capillaries once this occurs. In several cases under a microscope, in the examination of capillaries, capillaries are the very end of the vein and artery system. They are the smallest. They are like molecule wide in some cases. In some of the horses 
cattle, cats, other animals. This isn't just cattle. It's every domestic animal you can think of, deer, elk, even a marmot up in Aspen, Colorado. Dr. Altschiller looked at the microscope and said, I am looking at this horse excision and there is no, there are no blood molecule. There's nothing in the capillaries. Well, how, this was his question, how do you extract capillary blood? This came into really important focus when I did the first documentary, A Strange Harvest, because I took Polaroids of many sheriffs, not just Sheriff Tex Graves, just all kinds, to a man who at the time in 1979 to 1980 was the very first director and head of a laser research unit. There were no lasers in 79 and 80 being applied anywhere generally in the planet. This was research. And he was head of the laser research department at Rose Medical Center in Denver. And I called him up and explained very straightforwardly, I'm director of special projects at the CBS station. We have this phenomena of these animal mutilations. Could I come to your surgery unit on at some time that's convenient for you, day or night, and I want to show you these Polaroid photos and then see what you could do to duplicate the size on chickens. Would chickens be all right to use, chicken carcasses? And he agreed. And we tried laser, we tried electro cauterizer, and we tried scalpel. And we were comparing it to one of the smaller excisions, but absolutely perfect, about like this. Let's see, like an oval, if I could do. It was about that big. Okay, so you can get about four inches, four and a half inches. Probably six. Six inches round, okay. It was an oval that had excised the penis on uh, another steer that was down in southern Colorado, and the deputies were completely baffled by this one because the animal was found in a grove of trees in which they came down and made a tree tunnel and right around all of these tree limbs that went all the way to the ground were eight-foot-tall willows. The crew and I had to push with all of our strength. The cameraman had to have his camera up. We're pushing through these thick willows. We come to these wooden branches all the way to the ground. The deputies are going through and they're cracking open uh, these wooden limbs and we realized well we've got to uh, follow and when we got to one area the deputies were holding a branch and the cameraman had to go all the way to the ground on his knees and push the camera through for us to get inside now of this wooden uh, tree tunnel and we could stand up a seven foot tall person could stand up in the space created by the branches that came to the ground outside but were up in this space. So now we're standing up after all of this effort to get in there. And here is this steer, black and white steer. At that point, it was four or five days old. It's in my uh, documentary, A Strange Harvest, the first TV production. And the deputy said, take a look at this. And here was, if you had taken a compass in school with a pencil and you had drawn a perfect circle around, it was lying this way, so it was the left eye, and you just lift it up, just hide this perfect circle around the eye. The eye is removed, the eyelids are removed, the eyelashes are removed, everything is removed down to bone in this left eye. The jaw was cut the tongue had been removed. Here is this perfect oval where the penis had been only hide deep. Absolutely perfect. Looked like something you would see in a surgery room. And the rectum was poured out. 
And I had that as one of the photos. And because it was about six inches, where others can be quite large, uh, an udder can be 17 inches, 18 inches in diameter, and whole udders are removed by deep. I was going to ask you, is there a gender bias to this, or are no. they pretty much, none at all? No, no. What has happened over time, if I said with 35 years of being in the field and having read about it going back into the early 60s, there have been cycles, uh, cycles, six to nine-year-old cows, then bulls, then steers, then four to six-month-old calves, two to three-month-old calves. There have been waves of different ages along with different sexes. Okay, so, but it covers everything you could ever imagine. And uh, when I showed the photograph that we extracted, extracted from our video to the doctor, I said, can we run a stopwatch? And can you use a laser? Can you show us what you can do with a laser on a chicken? And we'll know that it's not as thick as hide. I'm running, I believe it was 19 minutes in. 19 minutes. And he had been able to make sort of uh, the old silver dollar size. It had taken that long going in a circular like this and it was leaving spiral edges where that never occurs in the animal mutilations for him to get out. Remember, it was experimental laser then, but nevertheless, this was in a hospital. It was medical. It was as advanced as it could be at the time. And he looks at what he could do with that laser, what he could do with the electrosurgery unit, what he could do with the scalpel. The scalpel was the worst. The scalpel was the color of the excisions, the color, the pink, the natural pink. But he'd pull and it would make slices. And he was a trained surgeon. He said, this is very difficult. He said, tissue is difficult to do a circle in. And the laser and the electrosurgical didn't resemble. And how much longer would it have taken to do six? So right then, we did an interview right there in the surgery room. It's one of the strongest interviews that I have ever done in the context of the time that we were doing it and the phenomena that we were trying to understand. It was clearly not laser. It was not electrosurgical. It was not scalpel. It was something else. As we have evolved to today, I right now have a file. It's many pages thick. It's brand new mutilation cases. Brazil, Argentina, Peru, more half cats, Naples, Florida, uh, California. I'm going to be doing a big Earth Files in-depth report about this. And when you look at the scope of the large animals that we've just been talking about to starting in approximately 1979 or 80 about the same time I started investigating large animals came all these stories of half cats the half cat bloodless usually the front half is left to be found on the owner's front or backyard or the neighbor's front or backyard, 90% of these cats are cats that have been with their owners for some time, that there's a routine of letting the cat go out just for a while and the cat comes back. A lot of people have doors and the cats go in and out and the owner is completely traumatized to find the front half with not a single organ, bloodless, on their front yard or backyard. And when that began, the New York Times did a story about all of the half cats that were being found in Toronto, Canada, Tustin, California, uh, several places within, it began in 79 in terms of the New York Times reporting. 
of this new phenomena, I think there is a link. I've always thought there was a link to the large animals, but what is it? And why is it that in the half cats, they are in repeated cycles? I know like Plano, Texas, Falls Church, Virginia, Tustin, California, uh, Austin, Texas. There are places that have had repeated half cat mutilations that will come, it would be 10, 12, 14, maybe over a three to six month period. Then it may go two or three years. And here it comes back. If I had a map, I could show you how it comes in cycles. Again, is this a facet because we're dealing with intelligences that have a need for something from this planet in order for them to survive and that they began focusing on half cats because did our government take a opposition to them and that we are in a secret standoff and is that why the United States government none none of the governments are telling the truth because what I'm sharing with you are facts. I'm wondering if it's because of the vulnerability factor, the fact that we're vulnerable and we have no control over the, uh, the source of what's doing this or the outcome of what's doing this. Excellent question, but let me give you a direct quote from a rancher this year. He is in Hagler, Nebraska, which if you come, say, if you're Toronto and you came straight down through the Dakotas I guess you'd have to come west and then down, but come down right to the very eastern border. Here's would be Colorado and here's uh, Nebraska. And you come right down to the very southwestern corner. And I mean the southwestern corner, here's Colorado and going into the other Midwestern states. He has had this beautiful Angus uh, ranch. Started with his father. They've been there 50 some years. And starting in 2014, for the first time, and slopping over into this year of 2015, he has now lost eight very expensive, beautiful Angus, of which the of the eight, seven have been pregnant cows. Hmm. And. When we did an interview in January when he lost another, this was the first time I believe he had a bull. Big help. Let me ask you, when you found out they were pregnant, was the fetus still in the cow or is the fetus gone? He never did any necropsies because of the expense. And we don't know. And that is, it, the average that I was paid, because I paid to do necropsies, in the early 90s and they were 450 to 500 dollars a piece so if you lose one two or three and he's lost now the eighth he could have done them on the first two or three he didn't and then after that he keeps weighing against the animals and the cost that he's lost this is the, the classic rancher's dilemma and they keep having mutilations and they don't do necropsies, therefore they do not know if the calf is there or not. But in this interview that I did with him about the bull in January that shocked him so much, he said, Linda, if it's extraterrestrials, I'm willing to trade. They need my animals, I'll sell them to them. I just want something I can use here in return. I, thought, I said to him, that is, that's the attitude that the whole planet could have if we were told the truth, if the governments leveled, if they could say on the one hand, we are dealing with intelligences that have been here for thousands or millions of years, they have a problem. Here's the problem they have. Until now, we were afraid everybody would panic because they can take animals, they can take plants, they can take anything that they want when they need. But we can guarantee you, because we are, now we can trust X. If we can do trades, they'll provide us diamonds, we'll give them 
livestock. I mean, something that would put this back on even square with the human population so that all humans were not feeling like that they were chastised for reporting a light or a beam in the sky. Maybe the human abduction syndrome would stop if we had a straightforward. And it was the rancher's attitude. And I think that if he is uh, out there and he's lost eight animals and said, look, I'm willing to trade with extraterrestrials. I just want something I can use on this planet in return. It is the kind of, I think, stage that this human population and governments think we have to get to that point. For, for the planet to keep going forward into the 21st century without official acknowledgement of everything that every government knows to the human family, we're living on a concocted planet. Animal sacrifices. Linda Moulton Howes, our guest tonight, folks. All the links that Linda has uh, mentioned tonight and to get her products, www.nightfrightshow.com. As always, just click on tonight's guest book cover and all her products, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can uh, order them online from the comfort of your own of your own home tonight because it's cool out there, let me tell you. Uh, also, uh, by the way, it has Earth been Lake. a windy storm here today. Like it right? raining, it went from perfect summer to it's like winter again here. Yeah, here too. It's really most bizarre. Animal sacrifices have been going on since day one, and all of a sudden, the last 200 years, last two centuries, we've stopped them. Maybe they're trying to tell us something by doing this. Is that a possibility? If we look at the ancient alien gods, we're sacrificing animals to the gods, and all of a sudden we've stopped. At my news website, earthfiles.com, which is that where the Earth File shop is that you were just referencing, I have been unfolding a series of reports that I have been calling the, uh, the maze or the mysterious maze. And the, and the reason it relates directly to your question in this regard. Back in the early 1990s, there is a man named Ray Boucher. He, oh my ah, God, everything just went. Yeah, you just disappeared. As soon, <laughs> right? as, I know. As, soon as you mentioned Storm, everything just went. Well, I was saying the title of this Earth File series, The Maze of Deception. Uh, and we're talking about uh, animal sacrifices in history. Uh, let's see if we can keep on going. In this Maze of Deception series, the reason why I'm reaching back to experiences I had in 1992, I was talking about a man named Ray Boucher. Ray Boucher had been investigating RAF bandwaters and at the uh, contact in the desert in, uh, on the May 29th, 30th, 31st and June 1st. On June 1st, I'm going to be doing three hours of an intensive on Bentwaters, more revelations, and there really are a lot of revelations. And Ray Boucher is one of the very first really serious investigators going back to after the first revelation about Bentwaters in 84 was the first year, really. And he was communicating with a senator, Exxon, who was trying through his position in the Senate to find out more information. Remember, we did not have a Freedom of Information Act request ability in the United States until approximately 1977. So this was a brand new period. Exxon was trying to use leverage as his position in the Senate, FOIA, everything to find out what happened in England. What happened at REF Bentwaters with all these military people with beams and lights and even the alleged beings. So Ray and I begin to communicate about Bentwaters then. And a decade later, this is tying together, we start with Bentwaters. And a decade later, Ray called me up. And in the end of 1989 was um, the uh, 
was an alien harvest. 1994 came Glimpses Volume 1, and in 1998 came Glimpses Volume 2. And those two volumes are about a thousand pages with the hardest, most intense, uh, most validated, it's, it's crop circles, animal mutilations, the human abduction syndrome, military voices and cover-up, documents. They really, there's a lot in these two volumes that I did. It took eight years. When the first volume came out in 1994, in that 93 to 94 time period, Ray Boucher and I had been communicating about some of the information in my book. And he called me and said, two men have approached me. One works for the NSA and one works for the CIA. And they, no, DIA, was Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. He said, they've showed me their ID. And they have asked me to get in touch with you because they would like to have a discussion with you about your book, Glimpses of Other Realities. And this set in motion about two months worth in which it was agreed that the only way we could communicate was by FedEx on floppy disks. Remember the little floppy disks? That was all we had then? And the first disk that came, and all of this, every single thing that transpired, every translation, everything, is in my book, Glimpses, Volume 2, High Strangeness. It came out in 98. It was the very first time that it was presented to me coming through a vector that was allegedly NSA and DIA that were investigating animal mutilations, human abductions, and acknowledging yes, we're dealing with other intelligence. And they said in their work that they were convinced, they were personally convinced that the animal mutilations and many of the phenomena were a cover. They were a surface to something else. It's what Jacques Vallée and John Keel would have called the control system. What is behind the matrix on this planet? And I think most humans sense Earth doesn't make sense. We are disconnected from each other. We exist as islands. We are not telepathic. We are not hive-minded. We are too violent. We are uh, very creative. And that something is going on that seems to work in constant cycles of humans going to war using whether it's clubs in one cycle or nuclear bombs in another cycle later on, we are constantly in a cycle of self-destruction. Why? This is insane. Why are humans forever in a cycle of self-destruction? And Ray Boucher, working through them to me, we began this dialogue about this maze of deception that the whole planet is in. And today, the issue of 16 layers, if you could imagine playing chess on 16 layers, think of the exponential number of moves that you would have to be calculating because you'd have to be making a move in 16 cross points for each of your turns. And if you can gr just wrap your mind around that and say that on Earth, everything from ISIS in the Middle East to all of the battles over whose God is superior through centuries, to animal mutilations, the human abduction syndrome, perhaps even beautiful crop formations, are all part of a 16-layered chess game in which there are competing intelligences. It's the competition of advanced intelligences, each with a different need. 
Where do you think we are on that scale? We are somebody else's Android. Okay. Do we even have a place in the game? I think we are extraordinary. I think humans are extraordinary. We're violent. We're self-destructive. But there is something about the human spirit and the human creativity that I think is perhaps unique. And that we are in a very bizarre position in relationship to other intelligences interacting with this planet for millennia. This is also according to the NSA DIA people. And that it may be that out of some kind of competition between competing extraterrestrials before Homo sapiens sapien ever existed, because you take us back 35,000 years, Neanderthal didn't know that they were being replaced by Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens sapien. The previous standing up primate didn't know that it was being replaced by Neanderthalensis or Neanderthals. You can take it all the way back to nearly two million years ago and the so-called Lucy character. Well, everything I've read, people in the government who have talked to me privately and off the record, Lucy is the first extraterrestrial manipulation of genetic material on this planet. And each of the successive evolving standing up primates would be like a different model. And that we are the inheritors of that evolution of experimentation. That's why I said we are somebody's android. Now, being somebody's android is not necessarily a negative statement. It just means that something beyond us is responsible for DNA and the manipulation of DNA on this planet. And a lot of people don't realize that Crick, who received with uh, the Watson, the Nobel Prize for defining that spiral DNA, they don't realize it was within only a couple of years after they were awarded the Nobel Prize that they teamed up with a brilliant biochemist, Leslie Orgel, who has been in San Diego in a medical center there for a long time. And Crick and Orgel put together a paper that was published in the astronomy journal, Icarus. So a DNA medical person, a biochemist, and what was the title of their paper that ended up in the astronomy journal, Icarus, panspermia. They picked up on the 1908 Nobel Prize winning August Arrhenius received a Nobel Prize in chemistry for his then theory that DNA on this planet had to have been seeded. 1908, in the 70s, Crick and Orgel pick it up and they put this beautiful paper. I have a copy from the original and I go into this summary in Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 1. And why this is so important? It means that people who ha are human, who have great brilliance in chemistry, biochemistry, and genetics, they have independently come to the conclusion that a double helix DNA molecule in all life on planet Earth, except for a few anaerobes and uh, just a couple of things that don't have the same DNA, that this is mathematically impossible on an 8,000 mile diameter planet that is two-thirds water with land, whether you go back to Pangaea and Gondwana land when there was land and water and then there was all of this dy dynamism to give the continents, they argued that the only mathematical logic was that this DNA molecule had to have been seeded. Now, there are people who say, oh, well, comets. So, icy comet comes, plunges into the water, it's carrying, it's carrying this complex 
double helix DNA molecule and starts life on Earth. Well, that automatically, but you don't hear people uh, writing about this, if comets can bring double helix DNA molecules full-blown into Earth's oceans, ladies and gentlemen, where did the comets get the double helix DNA? So let's say that there is another option here, which is exactly what Crick and Watson and Orgel, what they were discussing in this paper. In this paper, by these Nobel Prize level scientists, they say it is likely that DNA was seeded on this planet by extraterrestrials, therefore panspermia, life from the outside. And there's the music we're going to have to start to wrap. I'm so sorry, Linda. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you have to come back. I have a whole series of questions for you. And just to let you know, I had Dr. Francis Collins was on the show, who led the team that broke the genome. And I have lots of information he told that told me. And uh, next time. Linda Moulton Howell, folks, just amazing. I've been riveted to this seat. She's just been fantastic. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. witness accounts for yours right now nightfrightshow.com